Well, hello, Line Podcast listeners. This podcast is an interesting one. While we're running through all of our usual conversations about, you know, stories of the week, issues that are uh, really kind of in, in the center of the news right now, we had a long, almost unexpected conversation about the state of conservatism, but also federal politics in general. And there kind of was a, a through line that kind of linked a lot of our stories together which is about deference, or lack thereof, to authority. So stick around, uh, enjoy the podcast. You're going to hear a lot of different stories all in the news right now before we kind of settle into that unexpectedly deep conversation about the state of things. Also, we discovered that Jen doesn't know the names Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynne, Roy Orbison, and George Harrison. So that's, that's a problem. But we hope you stick around all the same and enjoy this, the latest episode of The Lines Experimental Podcast. I would like to start with a confession. Hit me. I was wrong about the Peace Act strike. Um, I, a couple weeks ago, when it was still a possible Peace Act strike, I had Ben Mala, Supermanian of uh, the Global Mail. She's uh, covering the labor and workplace beat these days, and she was on my satellite radio show. And we were talking about the strike, like, what, what were the issues, whether it was likely... And I told her and I told my listeners that I didn't think it was going to happen. And if it happened, it would be brief. I was wrong. I offer this purely in the interest of keeping myself humble. I'm wrong sometimes. What I love about all of this is apparently the striking workers are still getting a full pay while they're striking. So they're actually making more money on the picket line than they'd be making if they weren't striking. I think there's some, I think it's because their pay cycle is slow. Yes. I think I think like they're getting paid for the work they were doing last month or something. Yes. And I, I think that changes, but I don't know if it's changed yet. Well, except that the federal government said just just warning you, you may have to have a wage clawback. Except we all know that they won't because they'll just make sure there's no wage clawback as part of the final agreement. Yes, yeah, part of the final yeah. agreement. Or, I mean, who are they? Because I mean, I think I think I think that if they weren't getting paid, this would get OB over really really quick. But because our country is broken and. Um, we can't not pay people who don't work. This will drag on. I, you know what? I'm even more cynical than you are. They would never do a wage claw back because they couldn't find that how to do it in Phoenix if they tried. They probably couldn't. The yeah, they probably it would just literally be too much work. They'd so, have to be like, "Could you please write us a check?" No, and no. That, then and then the public sector workers would be like, "No." No, we'd and have to do like, one of those weird things where, oh. like, remember the U.S. was looking at printing a two trillion dollar coin. Yes. The debt limit. Yeah. We'd have to basically like mint a special coin and just pay all the workers with like a coin that was worth like exactly X number of dollars, whatever their back pay was. Uh-huh. The Phoenix, I mean, the problem I remember at the time, like when Phoenix was totally broken, I was like, why don't we just write them checks? Phoenix is the system that would cut the checks. Right. So, so we I mean, completely nothing, outsmarted nothing's... ourselves. Nothing's broken and everything's fine in this country. Well, let's talk about uh, things that are totally fine. So Conrad Van, uh, Fink- uh, Von Finkelstein, uh, former chair of the uh, CRTC, he was on my radio show uh, Friday. Yeah, he came on and he had written a letter to Pablo Rodriguez, the heritage minister, uh, laying out his concerns with C11, the uh, mm-hmm. online content act or whatever it is, um, which is now law. It's passed. And I so Von Finkelstein is like, one of the experts on this. And I said to him every week, myself and a colleague and I do a YouTube podcast where we talk about headlines and big stories and what we, what we want to talk about the next week and stuff like that. And I said to him, 
is that now CRTC regulated content? And he said, I don't know. Could be, you know, he's like, maybe like it's arguably, it's arguably not. There's going to be a consultation process now where we try to figure out the scope of the law, which we just passed in the law. And I said to him, into such gray zones of ambiguity or where abuses of power come from. Well, yeah, I mean, and also it's it's essentially just handed over an extraordinary club to the CRTC, which is, of course, the regulator, to essentially define their own mandate. And I would point out there's there's just a weird, just top-line philosophical problem about this, and that is the Broadcasting Act was initially put in place to regulate a finite resource, which is broadcasting space. Spectrum, right? Now we're talking about an infinite resource. There, There is, the Broadcasting Act doesn't make any sense in an internet digital age where there is no finite space of spectrum. Like the, you want just, more? You just add more service. Exactly. So right off the bat, we have a problem. Secondly, mm-hmm. if you've tried to read the Broadcasting Act, and I have multiple times, it's, it's a slug. fucking mess. No, it's it's a mess. It's a mess of an act where too much stuff is trying to get crammed into one thing. And a lot of, a lot of the, the debate and controversy over this act was a question about whether user-generated content was going to fall under CRTC guideline or fall under their under the regulatory sphere. And part of the reason why no one could answer that is because the, the act is written poorly. Yeah. Like it's just it's just it, it is an impenetrable slog to read. Ever read the Firearms Act? Well, I'm sure it's worse. It's terrible. It's I, terrible. Like these are yeah. these are not clear. It's not even that these are poorly um, written laws from a layman's perspective. And I think that in and of itself is a problem. I think anybody with a high school education should be able should to be read able any to read law laws and, have a, and have a basic, under, maybe not a perfect understanding, but a basic understanding of what, the, what those rules say. And mm-hmm. right now we don't have that. Like this, this law is not, is not understandable to even intelligent people, but it's not even understandable or clear to people who are specialists and lawyers yep. and academics. Like it's all, maybe that's what's covered. And I think that this thing has been so poorly and so vaguely written that um, it, it creates this huge risk of mandate creep and scope creep, which is its, it's its primary problem. Yeah, I mean, not only not only creep, although I, th- I mean, you're right. Um, but I would say on top of that, there's just institutions once created guard their own relevancy and they guard their own existence. The CRTC no longer serves its original purpose, which was allotting limited electromagnetic spectrum for AM and FM radio broadcasts, and eventually television over-the-air signals as well. Arguably, the moment we had cable, like it ceased to matter, but whatever, right? So it began to do one thing. It no longer does that, or is no longer needed to do that. So rather than wrapping up shop, high-fiving each other, and getting a really nice Costco cake, they're going to find new things to do because the purpose of the CRTC is now the preservation of the CRTC. Yeah. And we're we're going to find a reason to write something else to regulate us. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to move into now, I think the big fear is it's going to move into concepts like online harms bills and whatnot. Right. That's what it's going to do. So essentially you're, you're, we're probably handing the CRTC a big stick to decide not just hate speech is bad and worthy of, of, of attention and, and, and legal censure, but now anything that might be deemed harmful, yep. right, to the online discourse. And I mean, here, we're, there's no way to avoid just gross government overreach and censorship under that. Under that no, there's not. Language. There's just, it's, it's not avoidable. It is not 
a philosophically tenable position to hold. The fun thing is, too, I don't view this as conspiratorial. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, the government is coming for us. It's not It's not going to be some cunning plan they gradually foist upon us. It's going to be exactly what happened with that Lauren Gunter column, where the CRTC is going to have broad powers. No one at the top is going to ever want to use them because they know full well they don't understand what they even are. And they don't need that bullshit of actually having to litigate this stuff. But there's going to be someone in the CRTC who's going to send a snarky email or some sort of cease and desist or whatever. They're going to do it on spurious grounds with unclear authority. And then two years later, someone's going to ATIP access to information, that document, and we're going to have ourselves a national scandal. And no one will be more surprised than Minister Pablo Rodriguez. This is not what I intended to do. And I'm like, yes, but many people warned you this was going to happen. And you convinced yourselves that everybody who's warning you this is going to happen was a big evil con- member of the alt-right conspiracy. Yep. So, As I, anyone who is... criticizes them must be. Absolutely. That, so, yeah anyway, this everything's is, fine it's like, like you and i've talked about this so many times the conspiracies are always wrong because it always assumes malign intent and hyper competency it's the opposite yes it it's, it's almost intent it. and incompetency that's right yes that is that is the fundamental flaw with every canadian government regardless of political strife they're, they're almost all well-intentioned and incompetent but but unfortunately, they've got a real Dunning-Kruger thing going on. They don't realize they're incompetent, which gets them into trouble. Well, and I also think that the liberals are particularly bad at this because they genuinely think that they fart angels' wings, angels' dust. So they, they, Farting they're angels' little, wings would be uncomfortable. They, they, yeah, I think they, they genuinely think they fart angels' dust. And as a result, that all of the incompetent and sometimes outright corrupt things that they do, they can't see it or they give themselves a passport because their intentions are so pure yeah no conservatives conservatives i think don't don't suffer from the same degree of self-delusion oh i don't think the ndp does either no no i no i I agree yeah this isn't an ideological thing i think this has everything to do with the establishment of ruling elites thing it's 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 got nothing to do with right left yeah i think the ndp and the conservatives both being the parties that are not normally in power don't have the luxury of some some degree of self-delusion that being the natural yeah. governing party federally at least has has given the liberals um i feel like i quote him like every other podcast but i this is this is yet again what chris selly said all those many years ago my cubicle buddy at the national post the liberals are the kind of people who sincerely believe they would never do the thing they are currently doing yeah like and there's just there's a real dissonance there that i can't fix and what what I have noticed is that in the immediate aftermath of like a massive electoral blowout, the liberals will go, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. Now that was bad. That yeah, was- but the but the problem with this current crop of liberals is that they didn't actually do any soul searching. They just stuck the biggest shiniest thing onto the top of the liberal brand, which in this case was was Justin Trudeau, and they rolled into the next into the next electoral cycle. So that's the way these, these these people never learn. They never they never correct course. That actually wasn't the worst thing that happened to them. That was the second worst thing that happened to them. The worst thing was that it worked. Oh yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. And then of course they completely destroyed their own grassroots. 
So, and, and centralized everything through the prime minister's office, basically turning the liberal party into a cult of personality. So, well, okay. Everything's you know what? fine. Everything's great. Super. I'm going to country, country taken along. No I'm going to blow up the plan a little bit because right. that was going to be item three on my list, but now it's oh. item two on the list. Um, oh, I wanted to, I was one thing I forgot to mention that was, uh, uh, apparently we have a triple A rating, the credit hmm. regents, Canada. Oh, the, the credit rate. Uh, oh, and, and the G7, uh, best yeah. job growth in the G7. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you just have to ignore the fact that our high growth uh, is directly correlated with our high incredible, uh, ridiculously high immigration levels. And the second you divide any of these metrics per capita, we start to fall apart pretty we dramatically. Um, and secondly, um, a lot of people, of course, respond to, the, to our reaffirmation of the AAA credit rating with a, like, oh, but Canada's not broken. A AAA credit rating just means that the credit agencies have faith that you're not going to default on your debts. Yeah. That's if we had anything but a triple credit rating or triple A credit rating, that would be a disaster. <laughs> we have no excuse for not having a it doesn't mean that we're well-managed. It doesn't mean that things aren't broken. It doesn't mean anything except for the fact that the credit rating ratings agencies have faith that the Canadian government will tax us at a high enough rate and or not be default. able to turn over its debt um, at a reasonable enough rate to not default on its debt. Yeah. That's literally all that means. And yes, that is, that's good. That's good that that's something we, that we will not go bankrupt and default on our debts of Venezuela style. That's excellent. That is the minimum bar for a developed Western nation. We've met that bar. Yeah, uh, well, we meet we meet the minimum bar, and we continue to have our geographic advantages. So we're militarily yeah, secure. We have yeah. bountiful natural resources, and an increasingly uh, um, demographic advantages as a result of immigration growth. For now, for now. Um, so item three on the list, which I'm going to move up because it's just relevant to what we were talking about there about a degree of of self delusion. Uh, I wrote a column this week for the Toronto Star. Um, they 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 reached out to me and they asked if I had any reaction. I'm not, don't don't know if you saw the story. I'll recap it here. Um, did you see Harjeet Sajjan, the uh, international development yeah, minister? Didn't read his emails. So let, let me let me walk everybody through what happened here. Um, and I, I would encourage, obviously, because they paid me to write it, everyone should go check out my column at the Star. Plug for them. Um, 2021, the Afghanistan collapse and evacuation. Mm -hmm. Last week at a parliamentary committee looking into this, uh, a, a Canadian senator, Senator, I forget her first name, Senator McFedron, was uh, testified that she had a template of a Canadian travel document that she was sending to people in Afghanistan saying, print these, get your people out. Fill in the blanks, print these, get your people out. Sending them to people she said trusted people, like NGOs or people the Canadian government had worked for here. And this, just to put it mildly, is not the way it's supposed to work. Now, I'm not criticizing Senator McFedrin. Like, God bless her for actually seizing some initiative here and breaking rules in order to save lives. Like, I think we need more of that. But when she was testifying about this, she said that she had gotten the document, the blank, the, the template, from Sajin's then chief of staff. Uh, he was the, still the defense minister then. And that she had told the minister and the chief of staff by email that she had sent out like 600 blank templates to get people out. I don't know if you, I don't know if you had read Shannon Gormley's long feature at the time, which was about a year ago. It was fascinating talking mm -hmm. about the fall of Kabul. 
if you didn't have some kind of official looking document, you didn't even get onto the tarmac at the airport, mm-hmm. let alone onto a plane. So, you know, she had written about how basically she and and uh, Andrew Coyne, her her partner, were basically sending stuff on letterhead with like a big maple leaf on it, like grant this person passage. They had like you had to get people through the gates. And this senator, God, God bless her, took a Canadian document, gave it to the people on the ground there and said, go nuts. So there's a there's two comments I want to make. And obviously, I want to tell you what Sajin said about this. The first comment I want to make is that if a Canadian senator correctly determined that the only way to save lives was to bullshit her way through this because the Canadian federal government would not be capable of doing it properly. That is a data point. Like she on the inside, definitely not broken. It is working fine. How fucked up is a government when the people on the inside are like, well, the, the process won't work. So let's just improvise some literal bullshit. It's just copy and paste some letterheads together and we'll send it out. There you go. So again, not criticizing the senator, even though what she did, I'm sure, violated some regulation or rule or something. She she reached the correct conclusion and did the right thing to save lives. She should get a plaque at Global Affairs Canada. She won't, but she should. Anyway, back to the narrative. So she was telling Sajin and the chief of staff that she was doing this. Sajin was asked about it this week and said, I don't know, I wasn't reading my emails. I was busy. Who reads their emails, really? So, in fairness, there probably is an argument to be made that we live in an era with way too many extraneous emails. All of us are suffering some degree of digital burnout, particularly during the work-from-home era of the pandemic. Like, I'm not shocked to hear that a Canadian cabinet minister can't stay on top of their emails. I'm going to give Minister Sajan a tiny bit of credit, just a tiny bit on that one. I'm probably not caught up on my emails after. But isn't that telling us something really important? That in the middle of of an emergency in which the military was required to save Canadian lives and the lives of our friends, that the Minister of National Defense was being provided real-time information by a senior Canadian government official, and he didn't know it because of communication failures. Remember that column I wrote just a couple weeks ago, about uh, a couple months ago, about POEC, the Public Order Emergency Commission? One of the things I was writing about, because it came out in the documents, is that our federal government cannot communicate with itself. And this was something that was explicitly highlighted during uh, the, the POEC testimony. People in the intelligence community didn't know how to talk to the police. There were not established lines of communication. The The rules and the protocols weren't clear. Um, it specifically cited in the POEC report is Commissioner Rouleau going, senior staffers were getting their information off of, were getting their information off of Twitter. I know, because I was mentioned in this, and some of what I had been writing on it was what popped up in the testimony a few times, Stuff that I and others on the ground were were doing was was it was easier for the Canadian government members to absorb that information than their own internal documents here. We are getting sign after sign that our government can't communicate with itself. And what 
what what do we do about that? Like of all the like this this is the core of the can of my Canada is broken thesis. It's not that we're broken because we've got big big problems. We do. We have some big big problems, but we're broken because we're incompetent. And the Minister of National Defense is the guy in theory who gets a phone call when all hell is breaking loose. The missiles are flying. Does he answer? Does anyone pick up? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe? Probably not. One of the things that's emerged, I just find interesting, since the POEX stuff came out, and I wrote about it, was I've had the opportunity to speak with some police and military officials since then. Our police and military guys still know how to run a shop. They know how to talk to each other. Not for now. Not perfectly, but, you know, like, more or less, information moves. Our, the federal government can't communicate with itself. And I think we saw that during covid you know, the risk to Canada is low. Whoops. Nope. There's plague everywhere. You know, during the convoy, how many people are here? Who's in command of this? Somebody check Twitter. And I think this also explains even setting aside the catastrophic stuff. This stuff probably explains some of the dumb public policy face plants or political face plants they've had. How many times in recent years have you and I talked about how this government is very slow to realize it's in trouble? Well, we can I also point point out that the lack of email, giving a shit what's in your email, just also speaks to a major problem with ministerial accountability. What that actually um, tells yeah. me, what that actually tells me, is that he probably wasn't checking his email because it was no longer his job to actually serve as anything other than a figurehead, and the, all of the major decisions was effectively being channeled through the prime minister's office anyway. So of course he wasn't checking his email. He didn't give a shit. It wasn't. It wasn't his job anymore. Everything's been so centralized into like four people in government that ministers are basically stuffed animals anyway. I would say, I would agree with that. I would say that I, my understanding is that even notwithstanding all that, Sajin was particularly bad. Um, well, was... I mean, we've had plenty of indication that Sajin was not necessarily the, 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 the creme de la creme of the cabinet. I don't know if he was the worst. I would say that one goes probably to Mariam Monsef. Um, yes. But he's pretty bad. He's like second, penultimate. Yeah. I'd have to, I'd actually have to like, look I'm at I'm pretty sure list. Anita Anand is checking her emails. I continue to find Anita Anand fascinating. And anyone on her staff who's listening, because I know a few of you do, and shout out guys. Um, I know it sounds like I'm being snarky when I say this, but I swear to Christ, I'm just being 100% honest here. I still don't know if she is a genuine rock star or, or if she's, she's just competent. Yeah. She's competent. She's but actually blowing us competent. away by I'll take it. Yeah. I, I don't even care. Like, I don't even care. She is a competent human being who seems capable of doing a thing. But I want to right. put her on my shoulders and run around like she just scored the touchdown because she's competent. And you know uh, what? We're all being graded on a curve here, Matt. We're all being graded on a curve story of my life um so <laughs> Wait, you think ask... you think you think you and i would be in the position we're in in america where the best canada's got i don't know what to tell you was that with us remember the charlie sheen movie hot shots no oh boy it's there were two of them and they were like they were leslie nielsen style spoofs of military movies 
and there's this great line from the second one where he's like, you know, he he's the traumatized soldier. He's living in like a mountain retreat meditating. And he gets approached by the beautiful, mysterious woman from the CIA who says, we need you to go in and lead the team to rescue the hostages. And he says, well, why me? And she goes, you're the best of what's left. <laughs> and, um, the, the other, all kidding aside, though, I mean, the other thing I've said about my career rise, and I think this would somewhat speak true of yours as well. We got promoted World War One style. It's like, whoops, the major's dead. You're the major now. Whoops, the colonel's dead. You're the colonel now. Speak for yourself. I never got promoted at all. You did fine. Like, <laughs> you, you, you were doing interesting things. You you didn't, you weren't on the management track like I was, but you got cool and interesting jobs. Why wasn't I on the management track, Matt? What about me did not scream? I don't yet? know if it's the, I don't know if it's necessarily the perfect match for your skill set. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> Little and that right there of... is why, and that's right there why you're on the management. <laughs> well, I remember what Churchill said, right? I would think it was Churchill that a diplomacy is the art of telling someone to go to hell in a way that may, leaves them looking forward to the trip. Um, that's probably one of those fake Churchillian statements, but it's it seems, it's a good it's one. Good enough, we'll take it. I want to All ask right. you a question. All right, hit me. We ran an article on Friday by Jared Wesley and Ken Bosenkool. Yes. And I don't pretend to be the expert in Alberta politics, but yes. the thesis of it is that Daniel Smith is not a conservative and that they yes. lay out a definition of what a conservative is and and then explain why Daniel Smith is not. Before we talk about it, I want to just mention this article inspired some real response uh, in a good way. Not, nothing bad, nothing hostile, uh, but I saw a lot of people talking about it. I think it was a hit for us. It was one of those articles where we actually see it being discussed out there in in, uh, in the ether. Uh, people debating it, passing it around, which is great. Awesome I'm for us. The numbers on it. I think the numbers, so let's see if the numbers were half decent. They weren't insane high, uh, but they looked, they yeah. were healthy. They were healthy. Yeah. Healthy numbers. Um, What do you think of the article? Just fundamentally, is Daniel um, Smith a conservative? I have I have a view on this, but I want to get your okay. So the the problem that I have with this is that that essentially the definition of a conservative here is extremely narrow and ideologically rooted, and if that is what you're defining a conservative with as, I don't think that Ralph Klein would be considered a conservative. What we're calling Alison Redford a conservative, like who who is a conservative by this very specific definition? I will. I know. I I don't want to speak for Ken here, but my read of his column was that he was describing what his view of, like a Stephen Harper conservative. Yeah, okay. But would Stephen Harper even agree with that view of a conservative? Would Preston Manning be considered a conservative by this measure? Because Preston Manning was always a populist. You know, I, I mean, I mm, Joe Clark, I guess, would be a conservative this definition. Like, it's just, to me, I don't think you get to play this both ways. Either you have a big tent party that is very loosely grounded in ideological viewpoints, or you have a small tent party where you get to play these kinds of ideological purity tests. Um, and I think that for Ken, he's in kind of this interesting position where he's very much this policy wonkish um, ideological conservative, and he doesn't like who's in the tent with him. That's that's kind of what he like. And so, so the problem can't be the tent the problem can't be the ideology. The problem has to be that these people don't don't actually meet the bar and we've extended the tent too far kind of thing. 
I understand that from a human level. Um, but there, despite, I think, his objections, I think there is something fundamentally tribal about that definition of conservatism. We're in, you're out, right? And I think fundamentally the the, the debate about who's in and who's out kind of, his team lost it. His team just lost. So what's a conservative? I mean, what's a progressive now? Because a progressive now is is now essentially new wokey shit. It's not the it's not the leftist of ten years ago. Well, right? like that, that that's the the leftists of ten years ago were the centrists of today. I mean, I, and would be considered the neoliberal shills of today. Like I, yeah, I, I think that these definitions are always um, they're never set in stone, and I think that if you're blind to the, the 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 tribal human factor and who gets to decide who's part of your club um you you don't you're not going to wind up deciding who's in the club i the reason i wanted to ask you that before i told you how i feel about it is because i i defer to you on the alberta stuff like i, I don't yeah. pretend to understand those nuances Alberta's Alberta's really. I mean, I do agree with Ken on one point. Alberta's never really been conservative ideologically in in, in, the, in in the in the yeah. in the framework that, he, that he's suggesting. Alberta could just as easily have turned out to be the stronghold of the NDP opposition. Yeah. yeah. As a, it, you know, the fact yeah. that it is the conservative a stronghold is is an accident of circumstance and timing. That's it. Oh yeah. 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 There's, if Canada's there's... natural governing party was conservatives, Alberta would be full of liberals. Yeah, or it would be full of uh, dippers. And in fact, um, Calgary was the the place where the CCF was originally founded. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is just what it is. Like this Alberta, I think, was always sort of geographically destined to be um, in opposition to the governing liberal elites, the natural governing party. But the fact that that happens to align them with the conservatives is literally just an accident of history. Yeah, it's a quirk. It's a quirk. Yeah, you know, this this province thinks of itself as being really conservative. We have conservative values, but you look at who it elects and what it spends its money on, and the way it behaves, and where it actually comes out on values metrics. And we are stock standard Canadians, like on every almost every metric. Yeah, you know, well, we're not we're not more socially conservative than Ontario. We're not. <laughs> like, you know, they're certainly socially conservative enclaves, but like we spend like fucking drunken cokeheads. Um, I think we've been allowed to maintain this um, illusion of ourselves as conservative just because of our resource wealth. Yep. Right? See, I we get have... in trouble when I say this stuff, but this is what I've been politely telling you for years. Albertans, yeah, we're not Albertans have a view of themselves that does not match reality. No, it doesn't match any actual action. No. I mean, I think I think we have the highest highest number of atheists in the province like you know like it's program spending per capita program spending per capita is crazy high we don't actually have to tighten the belt the only thing i mean okay so uh ralph klein paid off the debt well how did he do that huge natural gas resource royalties and then he was shooting out of the ground yeah and then he proceeded to spend that shit like crazy and in ways that future conservative governments were never able to turn around like there's no rhyme or reason to what gets considered conservative it's 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 purely a tribal sort of like we are going to align ourselves with the party that we think is going to represent our interests and represent the interests of our natural resources that's it it could have just as easily been any other party the reason i found ken's essay very interesting and i i I defer to you on the alberta stuff uh, but i took a national view of it 
the kind of conservative Ken is describing, I agree with you, it's a narrow definition and maybe even somewhat of an idealized one, fair enough. But it's that's the small kind, small C kind of conservative that I am. And when Ken was describing that, I recognized it. But I think, and I, I don't say this to say this behind Ken's back, I hope he listens to it, and I'm going to flag it for him so that I know that he does, just so I don't feel shitty about saying this without him knowing it. I don't know if if Ken is as far along as the grieving process is in, right? <laughs> like, I had, uh, and I've told people this before, I think I've even told Ken this before, where at some conference, I don't even remember where the hell I was, but it was um, around the middle of the Harper majority. So call it ballpark 2013, where I first began getting the sense that the like warden to inmate ratio at the asylum was off. Mm. And you talked like you, you called it like the tent, right? Okay. So Ken doesn't like who he's in the tent with. I don't want to speak for Ken here. So this is my snapshot of view of it here. There's always been uncomfortable groups sharing the big conservative tent yeah i am the the kind of small c incremental progress conservative that ken talk about i also have a big weirdo streak of national security hawk we exist in canada but there's not many of us so that's kind of where i come to it i don't give a shit about all this stuff just get me a fleet of goddamn warships like so like i have a different set of priorities here but there has always been weirdos in the tent. But what I think has changed is that for a long time within conservative politics, the Kens were ascendant and the weirdos were the, were those strange people whose vote we had to count on and we, we had to throw them the odd bone, but they weren't powerful enough to matter. And sometime in the last decade, that's flipped. And I don't know if the weirdos are in absolute ascendance, or I just don't know if they're now numerous enough that they can't be ignored anymore. But I, I, I saw John Michael McGrath, who's a colleague of mine here in Toronto. He's a, a producer at TBO.org here in Toronto. He had this great retweet of uh, Ken, Ken and Jared's article where he just basically said, this is an issue that was litigated at the last leadership vote and Ken's side lost. And I think that's bang on. But I also oh, think... And Ken, is... Ken actually tried to run uh, Rajan Sani, who was one of the leadership contenders that ran against Daniel Smith. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, I remember and, that. Is, and has actually come in the line under Smith, by the way, is taking over Sonia Savage's old uh, yeah. writing. So, so, I mean, I don't know. This is... What is happening in Alberta conservatism now is what has been happening in Conservative Party of Canada conservatism for a while 2021 just before that election remember that article i wrote here where i basically said if the moderate conservatives don't hold like do well in this election the conservatives are screwed well and this is an interesting thing because i think it temperamentally if you represent the sort of laurentian consensus tory uh, red tory kind of conservative i'm a little bit more on the wild west libertarian side I don't know if I'm ideologically conservative. I think that if you were to look at my belief system, you'd find them to be wildly inconsistent and very rooted in a case-by-case basis. I'm not like reading Burke to decide how I'm going to come up with something. Like most people, I just don't 
I don't, I'm not that rooted, th- rooted in that. But, you know, I do kind of share the fuck you, Ottawa, fuck you, Toronto um, instinct. You know what I mean? I, I do kind of share that sense that too much of this country is governed by too few people who don't yeah. let enough, enough viewpoints through the gate. And I think that that's unhealthy and it's unsustainable. And I think that part of what we're seeing is the rise of the weirdos, the rise of the populism, the rise of people like Daniel Smith is a direct reaction to yeah. too narrow control being held by too few people for too long. And isn't representative of the ascendant or 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 representative of the um, established conservative elite anymore? He just isn't. He definitely think... isn't now. No, he isn't now. And and ten I, years I, I, ago, or 10 12, years 15 ago, years sure. ago, ten probably. years ago, 15, probably, yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm again, I'm not saying that trash can. I like Ken quite a lot, but. I also feel like now we're using Ken as a proxy, like not even talking. Yeah, Ken, about Ken yeah, we're not talking about Ken personally. We're talking about Ken, the Kens, exactly. Yeah. It's like the, that's that's that elite is now has been dethroned and disempowered, and a new elite is taking its place. The problem is that this new elite that's taking its place doesn't see itself as Adam, right? So, um, we're just letting that process play itself out. There's an interesting. Is there anything sidebar to this? Or maybe it's not a sidebar. I don't know. Maybe it's the central pillar. I asked a, a conservative friend of mine, kind of around the time Polyev was taking over, where I said, I said to him, describe conservatives in Canada to me today. And he told me they haven't changed much over the last 10 years. He says what's changed is the Conservative Party of Canada's membership. And that in change, that in turn is changing the caucus of the Conservative Party of Canada. Because there's an interesting, there's an interesting dynamic in Canadian federal politics, which I know I'm stating the blindingly obvious for those who've thought about it. When a conservative party does well in Canada, when it wins a bunch of seats, it becomes more moderate, for lack of a better term. I don't know if that's the perfect term to use for it, but a good election cycle for the conservatives is one where a bunch of Ontarians, Quebecers, and Atlantic conservatives join the party. When the conservative party is in opposition it retreats to a Western rural base. It doesn't change. Nothing changes about the characteristics of who as a Canadian describes themselves as conservative, but it can radically change what it looks like in parliament. And I think we sometimes forget the fact that I did some of these, I did some number crunching. I think it was in 2019 or 2021. There's something like, there were like more people in Quebec voting federally conservative federally than in Alberta because it has a much bigger population. So it's not like there aren't conservatives elsewhere. It's just the, the electoral, I'll I'll have to go pull the numbers. I don't want anyone to quote me on that, but the number, like the actual raw number of conservative voters in Eastern Canada is way bigger than I think people would expect, but they don't get the seats. And I think that skews the understanding of what the party is. Well, can I just like, say like this this sort of cycle between the elite and the populace sort of over there? I do think that there is an element of this that is an extremely healthy thing. And this is a big controversial statement when I make it. I do think that parties need to go through these renewal processes. You know, they need to have, you know, you have these yep. established elites. They win for a while. They just stop winning for a while. They increasingly lose touch with their base, with where the electoral electorate is at. And then that forces revolution and introspection, 
and a, a reimagining of what that party sort of stands for and what its vision actually is. And I think that that is a, or ought to be a very healthy process, a healthy dynamic cycle. I think that, for example, when the liberals inevitably lose, they'll have to go through that cycle themselves, right? And if there's anything left of that party's grassroots, that's where the future leadership from that party is going to come from. I, I, I think that that's really normal. And I think that it's also really normal for people who have been at the highest echelons of power within that party structure to feel threatened by that process. Now, that being said, revolution isn't always positive and progress isn't always forward and change isn't always good. Sometimes those revolutions lead parties into really bad, dark places. It's what it is. Um, but you know, I don't think that you can have, I think that if Harper were to be leading the conservatives today and he was, and we were, he had the Harper conservatives today. They'd look different. Would, well, no, if, if you ran that carbon copy of a, of, of a leadership structure in the conservatives of 2024, 2023, the conservatives wouldn't have a hope. That whole model would be so disconnected from where people are actually at that it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. It wouldn't go anywhere. Well, you probably remember the stories a few months ago. It never ended up going anywhere. Um, but basically kind of uh, Michelle Rempel Garner, who, who once upon a time was Michelle Rempel, during the Harper years, Michelle Rempel was considered to be fiery right-wing member of, of the conservative caucus. In the Polyev era, there were conservatives, according to reports, saying she's not conservative enough for us. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know what? I, I thought Ken's essay was really uh, Ken and Jared. I should, we should mention Jared as well, J uh, Jared Wesley. It's a really interesting essay. I know it's got people. To, people's responses to it are more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I think I, in, a, in a way that is Jared and Ken have forced people to confront their own self identity. Yeah. I'm. I'm okay being on the outside of whatever mainstream conservatism is because I don't, I'm not good at fitting in. It's a personality failing or virtue, depending, depending well, on my mood. That's why you're out here on the fringes with me, man. I, <laughs> I just, I'm very cool with letting people be themselves, but I insist upon the right to also be myself. And that makes me a bad team player. Well, this is why neither of us is in politics. Um, yeah, no, it's I, I again, I, I, I really do hope people take the time to read um, uh, what Jared and Ken wrote, if only, if only to see how it makes them feel, because I know there's gonna be a lot of people out there. Like when I read it, I, I fundamentally agreed with it here. The, con the conservatism that I'm seeing today does not align with a lot of what I would want from a conservative party. It's not even well, necessarily no. a values issue. It's often yeah. more of a focus. Yeah, but I mean, where, where I'm seeing this is that this is part of a renewal process, and I think that Danielle Smith and her gaffes and her blunders, and they and they are many, is part of a reimagination of what modern conservatism is, and there's going to be some missteps along the way. And I'm not that... saying that to, I'm not saying that to get to cut her some slack because she might wind up just blowing the shot. You know what I mean? Like it could wind up just not working. It could suck. She could lose. She could lose to Notley. You know what I mean? She could have a minority government and be backstabbed. You know what I'm saying? Like it, this is part of a messy process of, of of conservatives writ large redefining and figuring out what they stand for today. 
And it's not going to look like Harper conservatism because Harper conservatism was a, was a creature of its own time and era. This Doug is a Ford's 83-seat majority in Ontario does not look anything like what Stephen Harper would recognize as conservative. No, that's correct, right? It is, it is a product of its time and of its place. This is going, going to be, this version of conservatism is going to be a, a product of a time and, an, and of a place. And it, I don't, I think that if you're trying to find references for it in Joe Clark or Harper or Mulroney or anything else, you're, you're lost because those guys wouldn't win today. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, I would also actually maybe broaden that out a little bit. I, I don't think it's limited to conservatism. I think oh, no. something you and I have talked about a bunch, um, is how the NDP and the Liberals are both going to have to make some... Well, actually, I think more the NDP than the Liberals. The NDP is going to have to make some existential choices of whether or not they're going to try and be a party that speaks for working-class rural Canadians or a party that fights the Liberals for downtown progressive votes. I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to be able to be both those things. So there's going to have to... And the, gonna, the Liberals are going to have to decide if they're if Justin Trudeau, the Justin Trudeau era is a dead cat bounce or the beginning of a renewed party. They'll find that out over the course of a few elections. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure which one it is. Um really it's just I think and this kind of what worries me is that we have the likelihood of the NDP kind of going on a journey of intellectual self-discovery, the conservatives continuing their journey of intellectual self-discovery and the liberals at some point in the future, whether it's next election, the election after, I don't know, they're going to have to do the same thing, but they're going to be doing it in against the backdrop of what you and I have talked about so many times here before, just the broad based stupidification of everything. Well, and also, uh, you know, a public service that can't, Hold the fort. Yep. That 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 is increasingly falling into a place of sclerosis and inability to function. Of course, it is. A, there's no one supervising world, them. Yeah, in a, in a world that is that is that is not tolerating that anymore because it's changing too rapidly. So anyway, everything's fine. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, Catherine Tate. Uh, let me just. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, list. I got yeah, I got one okay. item left on the list, but yeah, why don't you run with Tate okay. first? So Catherine Tate, uh, Blackbox came out with a, a piece about this letter from Catherine Tate, who's the, the CBC president. Um, I think it was written a couple of years ago where she like basically wrote to Pierre Polyev saying, I would like to talk to you about your promise to defund the CBC. We should meet and have me tell you all about the economic advantages of the CBC. And apparently Pierre Polyev was like, yeah, no. She's like, well, I'm very disappointed and would like you to reconsider See if I can pull up the letter right now. It's, it's great. It. It's super. It's just, it's a, an amazing example of someone who is not accustomed to dealing with people who don't give a fuck about her. You want me to read it? Yeah, go for it. Dear sir. Okay, first of all, um, November 29th, 2022. So it was only about six months ago. Oh, six months ago. My apologies. Okay. Dear sir, I have received, this is Catherine Tate to the Honorable Pierre Polyev, PCMP, House of Commons, Auto, Ontario. Dear sir, I have received a response from your office informing me that you were not able to accommodate my request to meet with you. I must admit I find this disappointing. Given that during your leadership campaign, you publicly promised to defund the CBC, I would have hoped that spending some time to understand the organization would be useful. Your party continues to run email blasts and Twitter and Facebook ads, falsely accusing CBC journalists of bias and using the defund promise to try and generate money for your party. These fundraising efforts, uh, fundraising efforts do not acknowledge the scope or value that CBC Radio Canada actually delivers to Canadians 
or the implications to this country and its economy were to be defunded. As the head of the public broadcaster and as the leader of the opposition, I think Canadians can rightly expect that the two of us have a responsibility to discuss the implications of your promise. With that in mind, I am again, uh, again, extending again my request for us to meet. I ask that you reconsider this request. Sincerely, Catherine Tate, President and CEO, CBC Radio Canada. Okay, so two, two takeaways from that. One, I think Pierre Polyev is perfectly aware of the scope of what the CBC does and its impact of the economy. And he hates it. And he hates it. Yeah. And he doesn't fucking care. He doesn't huh? fucking care. Like, I think that this is the letter of a woman who genuinely thinks that this person is all just show and is threatening to defund the CBC just for fundraising and hasn't quite wrapped her head around the fact that he would defund her, defund the entire organization in a New York minute if he got the opportunity, if he thought he could get away with it politically. Oh, I don't rule out that he'll blink. Oh, he um, would totally blink. Yeah, that that might happen. But if he does blink, it's not going to be because Catherine Tate yeah. sat down with him and wrapped him on the hand about you know making defunding the CBC part of your your fundraising campaign. That is not a nice thing to do, Polyev. Yeah, she's not going to teach him like, the true meaning of Christmas. That's not. Like the 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 bells are not gonna give the angels their wings here. Like that's not what's going to happen. I, I just it's so weird and politically tone deaf to me that she would write that. It's just it's just so strange to me. Um, not that I have any problem with her meeting with opposition leaders. She should be meeting with all the opposition. Like, one hundred percent. By all by all means, that's part of her job. Do that one hundred percent. But I don't understand the political naivete that that letter displays. Um, well, I mean, how much of it loops back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about uh, the Kens, right? And not, yeah. under, you know, like, yeah, I don't she, think Tate understands a, that. No, she's, she's a quintessential sort of uh, Eastern gatekeeper type who doesn't understand that the party is now run by people who don't give a fuck, don't care yeah. about her at all, and don't care about her opinion, don't give a shit. And also, just like to defend Pauliette. I would, if if she were to write to someone like me like that, I would be under no illusion that that could possibly be a productive conversation. No, it sounds terrible. With some of the things that she's already said publicly, um, and and just 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 my my the tone of that whole letter, I would be like, that is a waste of my time. That would be a waste of Pierre's time. This is going to seem like, completely. Sorry. This is going to seem totally out of left field, but I want to tell you uh, just a story. Um, I don't. I would, this was a post media place in Toronto, the building where post media is. Were you ever there when they opened the aroma? Cause that was very exciting. Yes. yes. The aroma cafe. Yeah. So yeah, suddenly there was actually a place to eat. Yeah. It was great. That didn't suck. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, so I was in the aroma, which was literally right in the lobby of post media place, having a cup of tea, having a sandwich. And I got to watch one of the most fantastic eavesdropped upon conversations ever. Mm-hmm. So post media place is a big, big tower in, in in downtown toronto and it has a lot of offices there nothing to do with post media so you would you would all the time at the aroma there'd be people who were there from different companies and what it was was a guy pitching a, a colleague or someone i don't i don't i don't understand the dynamic between the two guys but one of them was pitching the an idea to the other guy and the other idea uh, guy was just not having it and he was being polite but firm and the other guy couldn't process that yeah yeah. It was like, so I know it's a big ask, but I'm thinking we could do X, Y, and Z. And the guy's like, <laughs> no, 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 we're not. 
no. We're not, yeah. And the guy was like, oh, but, oh, but, but like, okay, but like, what if we did it like this way? And the guy was like, hmm, no. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and I, like, again, I don't understand any of the, of the context here. But he's like, he was polite, but it was like, no. And the, and the, and so they, they go back and forth. And meanwhile, I'm like, I, I'm kind of like increasingly not even pretending not to be totally eavesdropping on this because it was awesome. And eventually, like the, the guy says, is this a hard no? Is this like a hard no? Like a firm no? Yeah. The other guy is like, I don't know why you don't understand that this is a hard no. And I don't know what I'm going to have to do to make you understand that this is a hard no. And the guy stopped pushing then, but he was baffled. He wasn't angry or hurt or upset. He was baffled. And so many times in recent years, I have just thought back to that. Is this a hard no? When I've just been watching people who have failed to read the room and don't understand. And again, this does loop back to the Ken conversation. Things are different now. And I'm not saying that they're irrevocably different or that they're worse. I'm not even getting into that. But how many times in the last year have we written at the line that the Polyev era conservatives are playing by different rules? Not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying it is. The rules are different now. And Tate is sending letters. She doesn't get it. That's right. I am amazed that Blacklocks had to obtain this letter by going through access to information. I'm amazed Polyev didn't post a picture of it on his Twitter and just go, no. Um, I'm amazed he didn't use it in a fundraising platform. He, he might now. He might now. Um, yeah, no. And, and the funny thing is too, I remember a couple of weeks ago, dear reporter, that, that snarky letter he sent David Johnston and like, half of Eastern Canada reach for their smelling salts. Mm-hmm. I have better manners than doing that. I'm more polite than that. Uh, like I said, like, you know, the, the Churchillian or, or not tell someone to go to hell, leave them looking forward to the trip. I've just like, my preference would always be more generous in its prose, but I, I wasn't offended that he sent the letter there. There's That's too much used to deference with me now, man. I mean, there's too much deference to authority. Yeah, that that I think that, that is exactly correct. Essentially, you have a country particularly focused in Eastern Canada that has started to establish these new aristocracies where hierarchy and deference to authority has become inst- normalized to such a deep degree that people aren't even conscious of it. And then you have some asshole Westerner come around and just be like, no, I'm not. I don't I don't fucking care. And like people just can't process the cultural divide. And I think it is a cultural divide. I do. I do. Um, and it is, you're right. I think I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna say what's the what's the connective tissue behind between all of that, I think you've nailed it. It's deference to authority. If it's a cultural divide, Res- I'm respect gonna... res- respect for norms, respect for tradition, deference to authority, or what Ken would call conservatism, right? And the modern conservatives don't don't have this. It's just not. It, no. Try this know. idea. It is a cultural divide, but it is not an Ontario-Alberta one. It's largely an online spaces one. I wonder if the true divides now are migrating into cyberspace where we just self-sort. Geography still plays a part in that, obviously. But 
It, that could be it. That could be it. I mean, I, this is this is the other thing I would say is like the modern conservatives are less animated by oil and pipelines than they were even five years ago. I tell my conservative friends on a fairly regular basis, I understand that you guys don't like Justin Trudeau and that gets you about 99% of the way to my vote. So like, keep it up. But I don't understand what a conservative party would be doing in power. And it's actually my job to understand this. And I like the conservatives do come out and they say, we oppose this. We wouldn't do this. We oppose I don't that, think they even this. know. I don't think they even know. I don't think they care because like, this is the Maybe. memification problem I've been telling you about. You don't need policy. You just need to win Twitter. Well, but Twitter, not it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's something here, here. But anyway, I think we should put a pin in that because we're already starting to ramble too much. The only other thing on my list that I, and I can mention briefly is um, God knows I'm not a, an expert in Eastern African um, politics, but I've been watching the Sudan stuff just because it's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Um you know, there was a story today about a, a Canadian uh, Air Force uh, C-130 Hercules that was there in Sudan for an evacuation mission, but it couldn't take off due to a mechanical issue. And I know that there was a lot of people going, ah, oh, the Canadian forces suck. Look, mechanical issues happen on planes. I actually wasn't that freaked out about that. And my understanding is they did get the plane fixed. It was something like the ramp jammed or something like inane like that. Sure. Give a couple of warrant officers a wrench and a little like DW40 and they can fix a lot of this stuff. I actually think it's worth noting that we seem to have responded a lot better this time than we did in Afghanistan. Did, yeah. And two possible reasons. A, residual humiliation from Afghanistan. No one wanted to do that sure. again. Yeah. B, it's amazing how having the entire federal public service in 2021 in the middle of transitioning to election mode mm. might have thrown a wrench or two into a high-paced, high-tempo emergency military effort. Although in this case, we have a strike, so I'm not even sure that... Military is not on strike. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Or is it possible that the difference is fundamentally that the military is at the helm of this mission and they weren't necessarily at the helm of... The Afghanistan stuff because wasn't it wasn't it global affairs that was actually took lead on that and it was the military that was essentially carrying out global affairs situation in it's Afghanistan a, yeah I think I think a, some things have gone better for us this time like we happen to have a naval task force in the region a frigate and mm -hmm. a supply ship and that's that's good luck like three weeks from now they're not there anymore because they were transiting mm -hmm. the area so they're Three weeks ago, they're not there yet. Three weeks from now, they're already somewhere else. So kind of a lucky mm -hmm. break to have the Montreal and the Asterix nearby. Uh, it seems like there was enough strategic warning this time for the Air Force to get some planes ready. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't expect to be able to answer this, but I just thought it was interesting. We, I don't know. If, like, I'm not going to say we've performed spectacularly. I'm not going to go around pin medals on everybody. But it's well, maybe they'll get a bigger, time. maybe they'll get a better plaque in Global Affairs Canada than the Afghanistan plaque. Um, the only thing that I just observed about Sudan, uh, was just the number of times I've heard just Trudeau being the point on it on, from a comms perspective. I found that to be odd. Why does okay. just Trudeau have to be the point on evacuate? Like, wouldn't this be the sort of file that it would be appropriate to defer to the minister in charge? Like, let, let someone else like what, what to me it just went it, i don't know to me that it was like okay so what what's it why is justin trudeau the point guy on this like this is this is a weird one for the prime minister's office to be the point guy on it, 
should be that's interesting on, you know what i mean like it's i don't know i hadn't it, it, noticed that but i was as you know just for some family stuff this week i wasn't paying as much attention yeah and, and I, I, i'm not gonna I claim that i would that. listen I, i'm not i didn't listen to all of the um um press conferences but uh it just sort of seems to me more and more often that oh yeah well melanie jolie is the head of foreign affairs and what Global mary affairs, Ng is, and is international and trade and then and and is minister of defense yeah yeah exactly like why aren't they point? Um, well, how, that's how, come, okay. how, how come it seems to be like Justin Trudeau is point for more and more and more shit? Because to me, that t- that tells me that that's a reflection of an increasing sort of like um, well, that centralization. Fits everything else we've seen. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just saying, it's like the, there are other ministers who should be answering. Deep, but I understand Justin Trudeau giving a statement or whatever. But why is he the guy answering no, detailed, detailed? Well, fair enough. But why is he the guy answering detailed questions about? evacuations like that is that should be not something he's concerned with like he should not be worried about the actual minutia of these evacuations and, and answering press questions about them he, he just shouldn't be that that should be the minister or even the deputy minister like you know what i mean like that's not this, hmm. this is just i just found that to be a really weird thing that he'd be doing the point comms on this um okay first of all i don't know i have i hadn't noticed that but i take your word for it i did notice and i did comment to a colleague at the cbc i was just speaking with her today and uh and on my radio show earlier in the week stephanie levitz at the star made a similar observation everything coming out of ottawa right now feels a little off and what i just mean by that is that it feels a little bit like those final two weeks before the summer break but it's not Mm -hmm. even close to that this week, the Conservatives were talking a lot about carbon tax. The Liberals were talking a lot about guns and abortion. It's like they're both going to their greatest hits playlist at a time when I wouldn't actually be expecting them to. Mm-hmm. Part of what it might have been, and this could explain what you're talking about here, is the Prime Minister doesn't want to talk about the PSAC strike. He, Maybe. He, but like, then why is but then why is he doing like any public relations? Why is he doing any pressures at all? He was in New like York for a trade mission, of, so maybe he's just stuck in yeah, a. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like like okay, maybe so he can avoid it though. Like maybe the things he's doing kind of requires press availability. Okay, but you know it's okay for him to be like, you know what? I'm not the point. I'm I'm here in New York doing this trade delegation. I'm not the point person on Sudan. You need to talk to Minister X on this. Like that is a perfectly um, respectable response. This is Why the guy is... who gave COVID briefings outside his front door know, every day for months. Like, like he's not out of character. That it's not out of character, and I'm not even saying that it's wrong. It's just to me highly indicative of someone who can't pass on the pest, the, the 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 spotlight, can't delegate. You know, it's just I don't know. Like as I said, it's just there's just something about it that seemed really not wrong just weird to me like um, he like yeah. the prime minister doesn't actually need to know point by point details on evacuation of canadian citizens in sudan i want him to know that that's happening but he doesn't need to know what's happening in detail and in fact he shouldn't he should be focused on other stuff that is that is something that should be well within the realm of a, of a minister's ability to handle 
Now I'm, I'm imagining him holding a press conference about exactly what part on the C-130 ramp jammed yeah, and how it, what exactly what tool you need to exactly. use. Exactly, like it. like I'm so gonna like, give it about three pounds of torque and then spray a little oil on. It <laughs> yeah, like I'll, I'll help you. Out. We'll get so uh, you know I went down to Home Depot, I picked this up for you, I flew it down, we got it. Like it's just it's. I said I don't even know if I'm explaining this well, but it just struck me as weird. It just struck me as weird. Like, why does it always have to be him? It, he he has other competent people in his cabinet who can be point on these issues, the, especially these kinds of issues. Like, he should be point on peace act strike. Even peace act strike. Why why is, why would he be point on the peace act strike? He's not negotiating. It's not his ministry negotiating. Like, I think my musical tastes are a little more <laughs> classic than yours. Do you know the traveling Wilburs? No. Supergroup. Actually, an astonishing amount of talent. Roy Orbison, George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, uh, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan. There's they, they're probably their most favorite, uh, most famous song was Handle Me With Care. And they've got this great line about being overexposed, commercialized. It's Justin Trudeau. And he's like the know, Meghan Markle of Canadian politics. Well, we were talking a minute ago, right, about these guys aren't good at internal communications. When I was writing with my well, my star column, I said, some of this stuff is probably the function of a burnt out government long in the tooth. Some of it is having a way over centralized command and control system where Katie Telford needs to personally meditate for 45 minutes on every issue before and when and I, but if you look at i mean you don't have talked about this a bit before but not recently when you look at the current trudeau cabinet it's not as impressive as it started with there's still some good ministers um or okay ministers but how often do ministers take point on any public policy file in canada it's almost it's That's, the prime minister yeah. outside of his house yeah talking about middle class jobs and anyway I, I don't even I didn't even mean to really bring that one up, but it no, just it did. just ugh. anyway, I think we've gone on long enough here, but you should go listen to the Traveling Wilburys. They were pretty good. Okay. Imagine a band that has Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, and Roy Orbison, and it's that's like that's a lot of firepower in one band. Do you know do you know any of those names? No. But to be honest with you, we're gonna reach the point of the podcast where I'm just kind of zoning out a little bit. Well, I'm talking about an 80s vintage super cool. So I don't know if I'm fully zoned in. All right. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to propose that, well, I'm going to go propose I go listen to some uh, traveling Wolverines. I'm going to propose you go zone back in somewhere. Why don't we just pop a few emails back and forth tomorrow and figure out who will write what. Probably worth mentioning though, Jen, that I don't know, if, will we do a podcast next week? Because I'm overseas. Uh, probably not. You were going to be in London. I am going to be in London for the coronation. Yeah. I will be filing dispatches from London. I don't know exactly what I'll be writing yet, but I promise I will try to keep them way more interesting than everything else you'll be reading from London because most of it's going to be identical. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, do you want to do a guest podcast with someone else or want to just skip it? We'll worry about that next week. We'll worry about that next week. All right. I, 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 we've got lots of content lined up for next week, so I'm not worried. No, if you're not worried, I'm not worried. All right, handle me with care. All right, bye. Bye. Okay, so we did get a little 
sidetracked onto super groups, but we still hope you enjoyed the conversation about the state of conservatism and respect for authority and all that stuff and everything else we had because it was a big meaty podcast. Just a reminder, we don't know yet if we'll have an episode next week because I'll be overseas, but we will figure out something for you, at least on the written front. Wish me luck in London and have an amazing weekend. We hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast.